This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Hi, my name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Uh, and um, I ran a little bit late this morning and uh, I couldn't grind coffee beans. So I am without coffee this morning. But my guest on the other side is my good friend, France Cronier. And I need to ask you, France, are you a coffee snob like I am? Yeah, no, I can be. I can also. I actually, <laughs> I actually have a thing that I like Rick Coffee as well. But I can I can I can definitely be a ground coffee but I much but but when my wife is not around when would you drink the, when would you drink red coffee <laughs> when I can't work the you know those coffee station things yes. that you now have in your kitchen yes my wife knows work that thing and that's great but when she's not around then I don't know how it works <laughs> well, I, have I really like it. I actually this this in fact here is Rickoffy, <laughs> and I think it has an important place, and but, I, I I enjoy it. You know that it's not coffee when they have to put the word coffee in its name. <laughs> well, it's not it's not coffee, but it's it's I can I can do that anyway. At least I have coffee this morning. And yes. Please, you're such a snob. You're suffering without. I'll send you <laughs> Yes, I, I've actually lost out this morning. <laughs> I have to go. I have to go and grind beans because it's because it's so pompous. Yeah, France. Um, yeah, you you have re- recently released uh, a book. Okay, sorry for those who don't know, which is probably un. Uh, probably unlikely, but for those who don't know, France is the head of the Institute of Race Relations, um, a brilliant think tank, probably probably the most important think tank in the country uh, right now, uh, pushing forward uh, good ideas, classically liberal ideas. And um, you released a book not so long ago, uh, within the last few months, called The Rise and Fall of South Africa, which I bought and I put the link under the video for those uh, who want to buy it, the Kindle version. Um, in the book, France, you've laid out scenarios, um, as you so eloquently do with regards to, um, not just the current trajectory, but the future trajectory of the country. Where, where do we start? Cause right now we're in a lockdown. I, when you wrote the book, there was no lockdown. Uh, so I suspect a lot of things have changed. Not really. No, I don't think anything's changed. I don't think the lockdown's changed much for South Africa at all. Um, I've got this advantage in, in that I've got a team of brilliant analysts uh, that work for the Institute and its associated uh, uh, think tanks, like mm. this Center for Risk Analysis that you see over my shoulder. Mm. And uh, these are chaps who go out and they gather a lot of statistical information for South Africa, a lot of economic, social, and, mm. and, and political information, a lot of polling information. And they develop a good sense of what um, policymakers are going to do about mm. South Africa, both here and in the rest of the world. And being that, together with being an organization that has uh, good ties into most uh, corners of, of, of the world and South Africa, you're actually able to write with content, uh, with, with facts. Yeah, yeah. Makers are likely to do. question of uh, where South Africa will end uh, the 2020s and early 2030s. Well, what does that country look like? And um, it's written mainly in 2019. And the manuscript gets submitted to the publisher at Tafelberg in November. And uh, this is before the events of Wuhan, of course. And uh, we go off and we come back and we have this this pandemic. And um, before release, the publisher said to me, you know, you've had COVID. Well, what are you going to do? Do you, you want to rewrite the book to, to, mm. to, to account for it? And I, I, I reread it and I said no. And it's actually a very good test of, of the art of, of, of strategic intelligence analysis. Did COVID change the conclusions? It didn't. And the reason is this. 
Much of the book builds the, the, the argument that South Africa faces uh, catastrophic structural weaknesses in its economy, in its education system, uh, energy and ESKIM, uh, and, and within the ANC itself. It in fact, makes the call that the ANC is set to lose an election. And uh, uh, peppered throughout the book is, is a line along these lines. That if you expose this, this, it's a fragile country, South Africa, going into COVID. If you expose such a fragile society to a great external shock, the consequences may be to bring about a political realignment on a scale of what uh, last happened here in the 1980s and 1990s. We just didn't know what the shock was going to be. And we looked in the wrong place. We looked at Iran, and we looked at uh, trade wars, and we looked at the Straits of Hormuz, and 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 uh, India and China, and, mm. and the conflict over the stands. We looked at all the traditional places, and it could be that, could be this. We didn't say it would be a a virus, but that doesn't matter because the virus has simply played the role of the external strategic shock that we anticipated would accelerate and bring about a political realignment here. A, ca a catalyst so of on, sorts. On I, said to, I said to them, leave it all the way that it was, uh, let people mm. judge us by how good we actually are as analysts and see whether you can write a document in November of 2019, you can have Wuhan in December, the fallout of the subsequent six months, and whether your long-term conclusions still stand. And, and I, I think they do. Um. Without getting to that point yet, um, <clears throat> what is your sense of the trajectory right now? Do you think that 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 the ANC is playing out the chess game that you have been talking about for years? I think it's uh, it's it's an organisation now acutely aware of its own mortality. I, I think you can describe the ANC as a boxer who's who's He's been knocked down so many times and mm. has actually lost the will and the enthusiasm to fight, to, to stand up. I, I talk widely to various audiences on, on, on where South Africa and the world might be headed. And, um, you know, ANC-type audiences are battered mm. and, and they've bought the thesis of their own inability to, to run a country in an effective manner. Uh, you see it in policy statements. There's nothing anymore about becoming a middle-income society or uh, 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 removing poverty entirely, which is perfectly within South Africa's potential, to be a middle-class country. We can do that in 20 years. You won't read that anymore in an ANC document. Uh, you, you won't read about supplying sufficient electricity to grow the economy at 5%. The Treasury's own growth forecasts pre-COVID, if those had been realized, they went to about 2%. The forecast of the government for how the economy could grow over the medium term suggested a high end that would be 40% of the average growth rate 40. of emerging markets at that time. Well, 40% of the rate. Emerging markets expected to grow at about 5%. Mm. And South Africa's government said, if we get everything right, we'll grow 2%. Now, that's, that's just... Sad. Yeah. And so I, I think the ANC is 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 beyond um, the point of. Well, question for it now is a matter of time, uh, the mm. manner of its defeat, and uh, what rises in it. Yes. Well, uh, your your connection dropped there temporarily, but I see you're back. Um, let's quickly go before we go to your scenarios. The point I made is this, that um, a, a client will say to me, you know, what well, what will the ANC do with a future South Africa? And I might say to them, look, one of the questions you also need to ask is what's going to happen if, if the ANC is not there to do it anymore? Yeah, that's that, and, and that's something that you've spoken about. And we'll come to that in a second. In the first chapter of your book, um, well, I think it's the second chapter. I can't remember which which chapter it is. But you 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 spend some time chatting about the Mbeki uh, administration, a time where there was significant growth in the economy, um, and we're talking about numbers that were parallel that were sort of 
competing with the growth of China at that same time period. Um, uh, you know, we, yeah. Um, between 5 we, and 7% growth, I think it was, you were talking about. Well, what we did in that part of the book is, is we, we, we sketched the ANC's ideological history. Yeah. Uh, from inception in 1912 through through mm-hmm. the the effects of of 1948 um the the ANC's famous conference at Morogoro in 1969 the the 1992 speech at Davos of, of Mandela that yeah. turned back to the pre-69 ANC and then the events of 2007 and um we make some points there. One is the ANC has switched ideological poles on three or four occasions over the past hundred years. It's and in fact it has spent most of its history as what would be today described as a conservative organisation. It would be by by today's standards the ANC of 1912 to 1940 would probably be written off as somewhat right wing and very much at odds with the ideals of the BLM. And it's really only between, well, 1962 or 1969 and 1992, 30 years, about a quarter of the history, a third of the history of the ANC, that it sits very firmly to the ideological left. And we demonstrated that after the turn in 1992, more was achieved in South Africa than I think the ANC or the country or its people received credit for. And um, for as examples, uh, Jeremy, they cut government debt to GDP levels in half. And in 2007-8, we had a budget surplus. Yes. This is mainstream arch-fiscal conservatism in, in Western capitals today. It was done mm. here. In, in that first decade after 94, the number of people with a job actually doubled as, as, the, as the economy began to grow. And between 2004 and seven, at the peak of it all, um, we averaged a growth rate of 5% for four years. And that was the first time that had happened in South Africa since 1970. And that, that is incredible. Now, of course, a lot went wrong. And Mbeki, we describe in the book, mm-hmm. uh, as all great political leaders, to use the term in, in the right sense, uh, as an enigma. Mm-hmm. Because even as Mbeki was, was building, leading this recovery on, on the back of, of, of the lead set by Mandela in 92, Mbeki is engineering the downfall of, of what he's creating. And it's the strategic mistakes he makes in, in several fields. Of, what are some of, of those? Honesty. Yeah, what would you consider some of those mistakes to be, France? Well, one we highlight in the book is, is sending Zuma to Natal to wrest from Butelezi the Zulu nationalist vote well, without realizing that if Zuma succeeds in something that, that all ANC leaders had failed in, Mandela failed in, Zuma inherits from Butelezi the Zulu nationalist mantle and introduces that into the ANC as a weapon, which he subsequently does so successfully that it helps him uh, uh, defeat Mbeki. A second strategic mistake of Mbeki's was HIV and AIDS. On on the one hand, there's the horrific uh, cost uh, to to lives and suffering and children who lose their parents and family structures that are destroyed. But there's another angle to, to, to that mistake, and that is that it was the gap that Mbeki created for the isolated left of the ANC mm-hmm. to raise money and platforms of influence to attack him at first on HIV and AIDS, quite rightly so, but then to build out those attacks in time to include what, what would later be described as the Washington consensus gear yeah. policy. <clears throat> and by the end of that era, the HIV and AIDS activists aren't talking about HIV and AIDS much anymore. They're talking about mm. economic and policy. And that brings things about the demise of Mbeki. And then, then the third big mistake mm. is, is is the injection of <laughs> policies. First in the civil service and later in into the private sector, which acts as, as a tax on investment mm. and therefore reduces Africa's uh, um, uh, in uh, domestic competitiveness is a third example. So, so you know, never settle on the idea that, that there's black and white and good and evil in the world. And Becky, I'm the lead of Mandela. Yeah. Uh, 
got South Africa at the point of a budget surplus, but in doing so, laid the ground for the collapse of everything that, that, yeah. that, that they were trying to France, I want to maybe segue just slightly for a moment. It's not quite in your um, uh, uh, sort of mandate here with me, but it does raise an interesting thought for me. The, ANC, the story of South Africa is very much about the ANC. Uh, Pre-apartheid, apartheid, as well as post-apartheid. Could you summarize just quickly the, the ANC's story? Just so that because it, it can create a wonderful context for where we are going. Yeah, I mean, the, the line we took was, was this, that 1912 to late 1940s, you have a staid conservative uh, movement mm. uh, uh, setting off in top hats to go and see the Queen and, and being rebuffed. Then the, the great effort, and, and this is really well, what made the sort of shame of apartheid that much worse, this great effort of black troops to go and support the fight against fascism in Europe. Mm. And on, on, in the expectation that, that if we do this, uh, we will win civil liberties concessions at home. And uh, the war ends, and 1948 comes about, and Smuts is defeated, and that doesn't happen. In, instead, uh, we white South Africa begins its the final stages of this march towards becoming the sort of white supremacist apartheid state, persecutes the the ANC and and uh, uh, associated movements straight into the arms of the Soviets and the East Germans. Um, uh, that experience turns the, the movement uh, sharply to the left. Uh, that continues really for 20 to 30 years, depending on your start date. Ends in 1992 at, at Davos. Mandela, uh, I think, appreciates uh, being brilliant and ruthless as he was, which I think are the two terms to describe him. The sort of Hollywood version of mm. Father Christmas is, I think, completely <laughs> wrong. Uh, uh, ruthless, ruthless, uh, and brilliant. I think the realization is relevant to today uh, becomes around the ANC that, you know, the, the whites, frankly, have screwed up the economy to such an extent that if we do not introduce pretty dramatic reforms and draw much investment, we will, by the end of the 1990s, be begging at the IMF. Right. And that's the end of our revolution. Because what was the point mm. of 100 years of fighting the supremacist ideology to end up having the budget speech written in Washington? And I think that motivated a lot of the turn. Also, the experience of China was important and in, in some interactions that occurred there. And, and you get gear which is, in, in the main, uh, sensible. Uh, we, we were critical of it at the time. We didn't think yeah. it went far enough. But, but if we could go back to it, we would, we would settle for that right now. We'd say, <laughs> let's just uh, let's have that. Um, no problem. Then uh, the, the mistakes of Mbeki, right. Polokwane comes about, and Mbeki is defeated by two groups uh, uh, who, who have the only common ground of wanting to defeat Mbeki. And, and the one is the resurgent left of the ANC uh, that, that's done so well out of the HIV and AIDS lobby, and the second is the what will become the state capture era of Zuma. And these two are, have nothing, they loathe each other, these two factions, but their interests coincided in December of 2007, and Beggy's gone, and with the man is lost, despite his contradictions, is lost what had been started by Mandela in 1992. And uh, from that point, the ANC goes off in two separate directions. Um, Zuma remains best described as a man who never heard an idea he did not like. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he has limited interest in policy. He's probably the least ideological leader the ANC had had. And he allows his leftist backers, who are not his allies, to, to use the revolutionary term to take back control of the levers of power denied to them since 92. And as they do that, uh, policy becomes increasingly hostile. We... we uh, <coughs> NHI ideas, uh, uh, the mad mining charter, the crazy visa policies, all mm. of that is this command economy approach coming out of the cabinet. And Zuma and his, his, his ilk uh, proceed to loot the state. 
And um, that, that carries on uh, through the global financial crisis, which, of course, exacerbates the consequences. And South Africa's growth rate from the highs into 2007 crashes through the crisis with the world. But after the crisis, as the world begins to recover, uh, infused by vast volumes of stimulus, admittedly, the South African economy doesn't follow it. And we see in the data the most interesting pattern where the global economy goes that way, the South African growth line goes that way. We last saw that in the, um, in the late 1970s and early 1980s as a consequence of the uh, uh, policies of that era. This persists and has a political consequence for the ANC. Because ANC voters do not vote on liberation loyalty. That is a nonsense perpetrated by the B-grade analyst community. What do they vote ANC, on? Uh, what everyone votes on, Jeremy. Right. Their own interests and right. common sense. Ah, they yes, okay. Sensible people. They vote on common sense. And, and they rewarded the ANC when it governed in a manner that made the lives of ANC supporters better. You know, one of the things I struggle with the most with many of my clients is convincing them that simple explanations carry a lot of weight. Yes. In 2004, 10 years into democracy, the ANC is six percentage points stronger in that national election than it had been when Mandela led it to freedom in 1994. Sure. And it's not the idea that ANC supporters are too dumb to know what to do. It's actually that life got better. And the reason right. there's confusion around that is because the anti-Mbeki lobby in the media and the left had got going and was saying he's failing. We have jobless growth. Nonsense. The number of people with jobs doubled in the Mbeki era. Service delivery had failed, we were told, and the media parrots it away day in and day out. Nonsense. Ten formal houses were built for every shack erected during the Mbeki era. So that was in the 90s. And, and, and and, and the political opposition, the DA, of course, jumps on it as well and says the ANC is failing, failing. It, it's not failing. It's actually governing pretty well. And therefore, its support was increasing. These are, these are uh, simple, simple things. Thereafter, as, as the growth rate in the economy went down, mm. the life of people got more difficult. And we can show it in the data. The proportion of families and shacks. Big, that had been, been the, the proportion of families in a formal house that had been increasing very quickly stopped increasing. The, the job creation outside of the state began to slow down. In, in real terms, uh, South Africa's per capita GDP begins to slope, then plateaus, and it then dips. And then an amazing thing happens. ANC voters lose confidence in the ANC. <laughs> and they, they turn away from it. And you see that in two respects. The share of the vote that goes to the ANC gets less. And the number and proportion of eligible voters who do not vote increases very quickly. And we end up now in a position where there are more people who could vote but don't vote. Yeah. That's the number of people who vote for the ANC. And behind all of that, last one, then I'll... Then I'll oh, two, two, two more. No, please, go. The proportion <laughs> of protests in the country that are violent Increased from about 10% in the Mbeki, at the end of the Mbeki era to around 30% yeah. today. And polls on confidence. Great question. Are you confident in the future of the country? Says everything that you think about the government of the day. Yeah. Confidence dips from uh, about 60%, people saying they're confident. That's the end of the Mbeki era. To around 20% of people saying they're confident in the future today. And that brings the ANC to, to the point of its Polokwane conference. And uh, to the horror of the of the victors of two of uh, to, to its Nazarek conference mm. in 2000, the victors of Polokwane, the, the left and the state capture chaps, are realised that they're losing political support, and this worries them as it should. I mean, everything in my experience of South African strategic analysis, everything's much simpler and more logical than many analysts make it out to be, and they begin to fight with each other. They blame each other. And uh, the relative uh, a term of state 
suggests that the state was captured by the corrupt. In other words, the the Zoomites. Mm. They, they, if, if we, and, and the, the it, it never held any water, but the sort of idea gets articulated, I, I saw it in, in business and in other areas, you know, if you distill it down, if we could arrest the Gupta family and put them in jail, then the economy would begin to grow again. Right. And that, that, that wasn't true. I mean, it would help to arrest the Gupta family. It would be a good thing to do. Mm. But the economy wasn't growing because the Guptas had stolen all the money. The, the economy wasn't growing because as the corruption and state capture efforts escalated, the policy climate turned incredibly hostile. These two factions now fight each other in the final years of the Zoom administration, and they go to the conference at Nazrek, where the ANC must elect a new leader. And by a knife-edge margin, um, so close it's a statistical error, Ramaphosa wins. And the, the, the interpretation is, ah, the, the, the old 92 guard has won again. They've taken back the ANC. Now, that wasn't what happened there. What actually happened at Nazrek is these two factions fought each other to a stalemate. The margin, I think, it, I think we calculated that if 90 people out of 4,700 delegates at that conference had voted for NDZ, she would today be leading the country, which, which she might be doing. <laughs> the Prime Minister. But formally the country. Formally leading the country. And um, Ramaphosa became mm. the sort of accidental leader of the ANC. And he's heralded as a great reformer, but the evidence for that is, is not very good at no. all. And and thereafter, um, many of the, uh, the these two factions settle in with each other after Nazrek. Remember, they're not allied, but they're now in, in a in a precarious position where they they really need each other uh, to survive to to an extent. If they enter into open warfare, yeah. tear the party apart, it simply accelerates its defeat. The 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 reform, what are called the reformers in the ANC do not really exist in great number. I, I, I could count three, perhaps, that, that mm. I think would qualify as real reformers. And then that's, that's across the top hundred, um, literally three. And um, clients become terribly disappointed, uh, we see. They, they say to us, there is no reform. Where, where is the reform? Why is there no reform? And a lot of nonsense is concocted again. You know, there's, there's a long game and... and a, and a mandate threshold, you remember that statement, he needs a, a mandate from people to introduce reforms. It's complete nonsense. I do the remember public that. Reforms, the public remains terribly sensible. I'll, I'll get to that in a mm, moment. Mm. The reason Mr. Ramaphosa and the, the reason the ANC has not reduced, introduced reform since Nazrek is because there are not terribly many reformers who, who, who think reform would be a good idea. The balance of opinion is opposed to reform, so strongly so that I don't think it can ever reverse. Even if, even on that, you can go a step further, and on Mr. Ramaphosa himself, some of the most damaging policy moves since Nazrek are things he championed himself. Hiking the minimum wage in the face mm -hmm. of youth unemployment rate in excess of 50%, in, in the expectation that this will help to create jobs, it just yeah. doesn't doesn't work. No. No one, no individual ANC leader has driven the expropriation argument more strongly than Mr. Ramaphosa himself. Yeah. yeah. Again, this contradiction that it, that we can do it in a way to attract investment. Now, I spend a lot of my time in what, what I call the real world, where we talk to people who actually invest real money in a real economy. And it doesn't work. Uh, in private, there is, uh, uh, have no doubt, the sentiment is if the expropriation possibility is there at all, it's well understood it's not about farms, mm -hmm. it's about financial assets and pensions and other things, then you cannot commit long-term uh, capital to South Africa. And there's proof of that now. The proof, as it were, is that South Africa's fixed investment to GDP rate measures how much fixed investment does the country attract as a share of the size of the economy, has plummeted straight down from where Mbeki left it, 
And after Nazrek, it has fallen even farther. Sure. This is where the NC now finds itself. It, it gets to a who neither of which has any interest in, in reform mm. and led by a person who even if he was interested in reform wouldn't be able to overcome the impact of those two factions. So what the we... client then says to us, right? What 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 well, well, well what what happens now? And we say to them, well, one of the possibilities, perhaps the probability, is is we'll still get to reform. Don't I mean, reform still happens in South Africa, <clears throat> but it's not going to happen through an internal ANC inflection point that brings about a reformist uh, move, which would really require replicating the events of Davos in 1992. You're not dealing with the same yeah. caliber of people. Therefore, now it's going to be an electoral defeat for the ANC. They're going to lose control of the country. Yeah. And... People look at me sometimes, I feel with a sense that, you know, this chap is completely mad. And, and, and our answer to them is, no. The reason South Africa became a democracy, surely, 30 years ago, was that if we reach the point that we're at today, where the country is not well governed, and the economy is performing badly relative to its potential, hmm. and... And the government of the day does not change its, its behavior in, in order to account for that. Then a new government might be elected. It's, it's again deceptive in its simplicity. But, but uh, people find it very hard to go along with it. Now, yeah. is there evidence that the ANC is going to lose an election? Absolutely. The evidence is in fact very strong. The trend lines, Polls last year showed that amongst younger people, ANC support is currently around 50%. Sure. It's only really amongst people in uh, relative that are approaching maximum life expectancy in South Africa, so high 50s into the 60s, that ANC support is higher than what the ANC gets in an election. So got 57% in an election. And amongst people near max life expectancy, ANC supports at 59%. The reasons, again, are simple. Those are people who know how much good the ANC brought to their lives after it took over in 1994. Younger people don't have that experience. We're a country where only a third of people are over the age of 35. And if you do the demographic analysis alone, you begin to see that 2024, possibly, 2029 seems almost... Inevitably, the ANC is going to lose an election. And uh, that is going to be the inflection point from which uh, reform in South Africa might later take uh, yeah. take root. And there, there are various other data points and pieces of evidence mm. we use to, to build this thesis. Uh, 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 but, but the demographic argument on its own uh, kind of seals. Mm. Also, you can do urban-rural analysis of... of of political support patterns, and in a country that will continue to urbanise quickly, in urban areas, the ANC is already. I mean, you, you can see. But it. you can see. It, you can already see it in the national elections as well, uh, France. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, completely. And 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 remember too, I, I said to the client that yeah, you mm. keep looking at the fifty-seven percent, and you think yeah, though that you know fifty-seven, that's quite a lot. Remember that behind that, there is a pool of potential voters bigger than the net number of ANC voters. Mm. And those people are not voting because they're lazy or too dormant to vote. They're not voting. Again, it's so simple because when they look around, and you see this quite nicely in polls, they don't see anyone that they think if they vote for them, their life's going to get better. Mm. The, the DA of recent years has not had a stellar run. Uh, South Africa is a very moderate society in, in the main, and, and the sort mm. of radical racial nationalist populism of the, of the EFF is, is not particularly popular outside of, of the media and, and of social media. I mean, the, in a country where half of young black people don't have a job and therefore any kind of decent future, the EFF struggles to get 10% of the national vote. Yeah. That doesn't show the strength of the EFF. That shows the strength of the pragmatism and moderation and, frankly, magnanimity of the great majority of black South Africans, now the most powerful countervailing force 
in favour of South Africa's long-term success. Uh, should that magnanimity you've, um, Franz, you, you've created a, a wonderful uh, mind map, for me at least, of this rise from apartheid that happened in the 90s, right? Then, then there was this fall, uh, which basically aligns with, with the Zuma years, okay? And that fall seems to be falling still uh, under the Ramaphosa years. So there seems to be this continual fall. But then, based on what you've just been saying, there seems to be this, this potential for a rise again towards the end of the 2020s. Is that what you're seeing? Well, exactly, exactly. Look, the title of the book is The Rise or Fall of South Africa. Oh, not Rise and or Fall. Or is a very important Right, yes. <laughs> the Rise and Fall would, would be too sad a book, and I wouldn't write it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that is correct. It is it Rise or Fall, yeah. But basically, but basically what you're saying is that... Yeah, the rise awful. Sorry about that. Um, funny, funny that because I own the book, so I should <laughs> I should know this. <laughs> the assumption it shows the assumption of people too, and and sometimes. Mm. No, it's a, it's or and uh, very definitely. Um, mm. If South Africa retains the basic trappings of being a democracy, and current economic and related political trends continue, the ANC is going to lose an election. You're going to be in coalition for for a time. Coalitions are a bit shambolic. I mean, if, if if you can't if you can't hold the coalition together in Port Elizabeth, you're probably not going to hold it together in the union buildings. Out of that, uh, so we think the ANC loses. Then South Africa mm. has, has five years of of slightly symbolic coalition, but but sli- slightly symbolic is not a bad thing because policy paralysis means the good ideas can't be implemented, but there aren't many good ideas around to be implemented. It it also means the destructive idea such as the seizure of pension funds, uh, will not be implemented either. And if we, if public sentiment, as we read it, remains as it is, moderate to conservative, and South Africa remains a largely free and open society, and the sort of benefactors of political movements begin to realize that the solution lies outside of the current political establishment, then the chances become quite good, actually. Mm. that um, 2029 will see an entirely new uh, political uh, dispensation uh, walking up the stairs into the union buildings. And hopefully hopefully, then and it's the that rise. On, that's the rise. In, introduce some uh, p- uh, sensible uh, reforms, you know, do away with expropriation, price poor people into jobs, turn empowerment policy on its head completely, and say that its basis has to be socio-economic. Mm. Uh, empowerment policy is critical area of policy for South Africa's success. We do need to accelerate and take special measures to do so. Uh, poor people into the middle classes, but the term is is poor people into the middle classes. And uh, in the very same way that the government's social welfare program is race neutral, it doesn't give you a grant because you're black. It gives you a grant because you're poor. We just need to expand that lesson into 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 empowerment policy broadly. Mm-hmm. Say, look, if you're a chap who grew up in a poor community, then yes, taxpayer-funded measures are the right thing to do to help you climb the ladder. And uh, of of that, the the I, I don't I, I think mainstream opinion in South Africa is is unanimous on that. The beneficiaries uh, will be black in the main. Uh, because black people are, are show, demonstrate higher levels of poverty than white people. But they won't benefit because they're black. They'll benefit because they are poor. And upon that distinction hinges, I think that's the key, to key understanding for any prospective political movement that wishes to govern South Africa successfully. Make that distinction clear. Because if you do that, every beneficiary of your empowerment policy is a person who needs some help. You, you cut out the gatekeeping. Now, some interesting research in, on America, uh, elite universities, introduced affirmative action measures in the 1960s and 1970s. Mm. They found that those saw people of lower mm. socioeconomic brackets entering those universities. But the second generation 
of, of black entrants were much more prosperous. And the reason was that the first generation had become prosperous and had become, not in a pejorative sense, gatekeepers to admission. And that therefore to continue feeding a stream of lower socioeconomic strata uh, graduates through those elite colleges, you need to do away with race-based admissions and make admissions socioeconomic-based. And I think South Africa's had the same experience. Okay, two of affirmative action did help to mm. a new black middle class, but um, uh, uh, people who were poor became middle class. For that to continue, you now need to change the basis of the policy from race to, to actual socioeconomic disadvantage. If, if you get a future administration that does so, uh, that in and of itself is mm. probably sufficient to secure Guarantee the fact that South Africa will become one of the most exciting emerging markets anywhere in the world. Uh, 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 and and the, 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 yeah, now the, there's enough now, Jeremy, that this isn't going to be done within the current ANC. No, no. Um, so what happened, France? What happened to the ANC then? I think the internal contradictions, that's what happened. Well, firstly, it's 100 years old, 100 and... 10, 108, mm. 1912, 108. It's old, firstly, you know, old movements do lose their way. Mm. Um, I, I think that went wrong. I think uh, it, it was fortunate in having Mandela uh, were in, in the 1990s, um, whose individual ruthless brilliance uh, 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 was able to, to give the ANC a new lease of life post-liberation. Mm. But remember, you, you also said earlier that, that South Africa's history is part of the history of the ANC, and I was always going to challenge you there, but then we went in another direction. You know, through Sharpeville and then 1976, mm. that, the ANC wasn't very present on the ground at the time at all. And here you should read the very excellent analyses of my colleague, Dr. Anthea, Anthea Jeffrey. Jeffrey yeah. It's really only in the aftermath of, of Soweto that the ANC makes a concerted effort to get back onto the ground. But by that stage, her, her then colleague, Marshall, senior colleague, John Kane Berman's already making the argument that, that apartheid is over. And then the ANC really gets back into the game after people on the ground have defeated the, the apartheid system in practice. Apartheid was dead by, by the, 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 the early 80s. It was simply waiting for an external global shock to be the inflection point. In the same way that, that I'm suggesting in the book that, that the ANC is already dead. It's only waiting for an external global shock. And and the global shock came one month after the manuscript was submitted to the public. <laughs> but and, do you think uh, do you think that the ANC is still going to try and use uh, this this pandemic um, as a catalyst to accelerate um, it's it's NDR uh, policies or at least yeah, no, desires. Uh, it will definitely do that, but but it's it's certainly tried to do so already. You, mm. I think you immortalised the term unfettered e-commerce. That was uh, a cabinet minister on mm. why you shouldn't be able to buy some goods online during the. So there was an and price yeah. controls introduced and so on. But but you know it. it the fragilities in, in South Africa now are so great that when you do something like that, the consequences are just absolutely devastating. Of course, yeah. You, you hike your, your – when your unemployment rate among young people is already 50%, and then you hike minimum wage levels, mm. devastation. When, when your, your, your fixed investment to GDP rate is plummeting and you then say expropriation, it's – I mean, you, you – you, you, it, it's, it decimates uh, your the consequences. So I think it, it's the opposite of the Midas touch at the moment. I, th I think more efforts mm. will be made uh, uh, to do such. Uh, each one will deliver uh, for the for the party, the, the person, the, the individual, the cabinet minister yeah. behind that policy. Uh, the, the consequences will be frightening. It's in, like giving it's like giving a cancer life. patient uh, cigarettes and junk food. Uh, just it's just now it's 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 this is why I say people say when's the when's the where's the point of no return probably in in December of two thousand and seven. 
Sure. Uh, that, that's where the point of no return was. Um, and um, yeah, so attempts will be made. Will they succeed? I don't think ultimately mm. they will. But, but they'll cause damage along the way. Pensions are on the line, no doubt. That's coming. Land. Uh, a firmer moves towards expropriation, of, of which pensions will be the first victim, uh, definitely. Uh, so, so expect more of, of this to happen. Um, but ultimately, it will, it, in the longer scheme of things, if, if, immediately you run the risk of now losing your pension. So I'm not, I'm not, I, I, you know, but, but in the longer scheme of things, mm. all these little steps along the way are simply going to accelerate what may ultimately be the... The actual demise of the ANC. Sorry, I lost you again for a second. France, I have been very rude in that I have ignored all the comments and the questions. Can I can I read some of them to you? Uh, yeah, please. Otherwise, I'm going to lose viewers because they're going, well, you're not even listening to our questions. <laughs> so we've got a question here from Hanko. Thank you for your contribution, Hanko. Uh, he says, uh, great to see France. Uh, I'd like to know from France if he supports a referendum for independence of the Western Cape and would he be willing to uh, this kind of debate? Do you see this in the rise or the fall of South Africa, uh, secession or self-determination, France? Now, we see fragmentation is what we call it. And um, I'll tell you my take on, on mm. secession. And uh, I don't think, I think the, the old-fashioned secession is the idea of drawing a line on a map and holding a referendum. And then we, we in this block, we vote. We want to be on our own. I, I think we're past that. I, I think secession now is a different process. It's, it's communities. It's, it's not a de jure uh, uh, independence. It's a de facto one. Communities that on like an onion, down to the micro scale, simply assume greater responsibility for their own affairs. And uh, South Africa, we, 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 I think there, there are, are, are several steps. We set them out in the book. The first one, this started, we said, when the first suburb built a fence around the suburb to keep out burglars. And uh, that was stage one. Stage two was when the people inside that fence said, you know, maybe we should do our own refuse removal or get a security guard. And they'd now appropriated a, a function of the state, security. The third stage is one South Africa's in now, where we have these purpose-built medieval villages, you know, a great wall, and then mm. everybody lives inside. And there are uh, schools and hospitals and shops. And in practice, you never have to leave. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. You can be born inside uh, these places. And die there and never see what the world looks like outside. And you live inside this walled village and they're armed guards that kind of patrol the wall and they keep you, 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 you live your life inside. The fourth generation, and this is my answer to your question, the fourth step and it's coming, we, we say in the book, is this. These increasingly independent enclaves are going to be networked to each other. Their residents will have a lot of their money offshore, so they they'll they'll be they they won't be exposed uh, to South Africa's decline in rand terms. In fact, they could do very well out, out of the currency. They will work for themselves, not for larger corporations and government entities and the things. For clients, both here and around the world, the the, the domestic thing will will cease being important, and they will work in a services economy where their intellectual capital becomes the source of their of their income. And they will maintain very, very high standards of living uh, as a consequence, uh, despite the general decline mm. of, of society around them. The, these enclaves will, of course, be written off as elitist outposts of privilege, which is what they are, and they should accept that, because that is not a bad thing to be. Because what this allows South Africa is the chance, and it will do it, it will retain its middle class through the tough decade that lies ahead. And therefore, unlike other emerging markets that have been through what we're about to go through, we'll come out on the other end with a middle class largely intact. And therefore, the skills and the capital and the mm -hmm. expertise to build a great society. 
And these enclaves, denounced now as these outposts of, of privilege, even by people who live within the enclaves, which mm. is an irony that <laughs> needs to be better exposed in the media. Um, the enclaves will become the nuclei around which, which uh, South Africa will be built. But the fact now is you don't need to have a referendum to make the Cape independent. You can actually create a community around you, yourself. Oh, you, you, you're saying it's up here? It's always, I've always said it. I've always, I'm sure I've said it to you as well. I'm, I'm, I've, I've always said it. The, 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 the secession is not a thing that's going to happen on a map. It's a thing that's going to happen in, in the mindset of a group of individuals. And that mindset is for the next decade going to be the watershed between South Africans that do well out of the country and those who see their circumstances deteriorate because they have tied them the decisions of the South African government and its state. Yeah, so, wait, so if I'm understanding you, France, if I'm understanding... Sorry, I lost you there, so I, I, I overspoke you. I, my apologies. Carry on. No, no, and I, I think that is the watershed, and, and it's mm. I sometimes... Yeah, you know, I've talked to a lot of corporate clients. Sometimes I, I really like going to just talk in the community. And uh, you see a lot in that community. People, you get one group of people who hear that and they mm. say it's too difficult, too hard, won't happen, it's terrible. And, and you know immediately they don't have a chance at being successful. Then you'll yeah. occasionally come across a community that says, you know, this really inspires us because what you've told us is it's going to be rough out there. South Africa is not going to be well governed mm. for quite a number of years. And that's a good thing. But but if we get our own act mm. together, we, we can do relatively well despite that. And I, I think that is where the, the, the mindset plays itself out. And to answer the question I've been asked, if if uh, the, the some of the Cape Independence people did uh, have uh, spoken uh, to us before, and we said to them, if you want what you want, which is this independent state, the route to Cape independence leads through Ulundi. You won't get it right in the Cape first. It will have to be in Natal. And if it happens in Natal, and the king has threatened, you know, from time mm, to time mm. he rules his, his, his saber and says, if you don't, if you try and take the Ngonyama Trust, I'll yes. succeed. If, if South Africa is going to balkanize or break up into, into de jure independent series of entities, or go back to something along the lines of what the country was before Union, if that's going to happen, it will start in Natal and the Cape chaps will we'll capitalize what has. On, yeah, and, and then it will balkanize uh, quite uh, quickly. Um, it's an interesting thing because what, you, what you're talking about, the. Uh, the fourth, the fourth scenario um, is basically a sense of state proofing. It's basically people saying the government is failing so miserably that we need to take control ourselves and we need to start privatizing a lot more. So in a sense, there's, there's this weird kind of meta-narrative that the failure of the government leads to more private sector um, innovation. Am I, am I right? Yeah, Jeremy. That's exactly right. And, and that's the, the more the state tries to do more, the faster it accelerates the growth of, of non-state actors and influence. So the faster it, it now pursues its national democratic revolution, the faster it brings about its own demise. The faster it seeks to drive its, its empowerment measures in the civil service, mm. the faster it spawns a new uh, a community of independent uh, service providers. Uh, the faster it, it takes political control of the police, the more communities turn to private security or vigilante options in, in the case of poorer people. That's a great insight, and you're absolutely right. Um, may, may I take one or two more questions before we say cheers, um, if you don't mind, Franz? There are so many comments. There are so many comments. I just I cannot no, I even... Know, I don't have time pressure for the next little bit, so let's see how much we can then. Well, I'm recording with Gareth shortly, so I, I, I also I do have a little bit okay. of time pressure. So let me quickly get through. Uh, John says the those enclaves will then need their own currency. You see, this is where it gets complicated. Uh, he's jumping the gun a bit, don't you think? 
Well, no, you've got your, you've got the US dollar. That's your currency. Uh, you, you, you. Uh, I, I talk a lot of wealth. Crypto. Seminars, you mentioned crypto. Well, crypto part of it. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I know the crypto guys, and, and they're very mm. enthusiastic about crypto. And yeah, I, I think it has a, in, in the sense of bringing about an end of central banking. It's, it's interesting. But for the immediate future, you have a currency. It's called the US dollar. I attend a lot of wealth seminars mm. and, and speak at them. And the, the executives would never admit this in public. But the advice to the clients is take your money and run away into the US dollar. So there you have your currency. <laughs> yes, another comment. Um, <clears throat> he says, yeah, with regard. OK, so this is going back to a point you made earlier, uh, France Vessel says, with regard to these communities that you're speaking about, if the people are collectively impoverished through continual increasing taxes, um, how does this how does this independence manifest? France? Well, it's 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 it is the the very essence of it. It's you got to admit it's not it's not easy. It's not it's not you, you can't stop. I think you should stop paying tax either because also used to provide the services and social grants and the things that keep desperate people from starving to death. Literally, I've I've lived in a small town for mm. the duration of the lockdown. There are people here who are starving because they've lost their jobs. Mm. So tax boycotts and the things, yeah, you know, you understand the sentiment to a point, but there are also a lot of very decent people who are just being kept alive because because you pay tax. So I don't have a... We fight the corruption mm. strongly, of course, but I don't have a, a tax problem. It's not going to be easy. You're not going to get your tax back. You're going to yeah. pay tax twice. You still pay your tax to the state, and then you're going to pay for your own private services. And this is what I mean that the, by the mindset. The, the, the chap who, who confronts me at, at an event, uh, when there were still events, and says, <laughs> we can't do it because it's so hard. Mm. I know he's not going to do it. It's not going to work for them. And, and, and for a chap like that, uh, not, not, not your guest, but, but I'm talking about the generic mm. chap. Uh, th that's the kind of chap who will do better in, in, in Australia and New Zealand and uh, mm. somewhere like that. The chap who immediately gets it, that, yeah, this, it's going to be hard and it's not fair and it's going to be tough. Right. And I'm barely going to make it with my school fees and bond payments. But this is the only way. That guy, I think, in the longer term, and the community is a part of, has a good long-term positive future in, in this country. We live in a volatile world and in a volatile corner of that world. Well, one of the most volatile. Mm. And uh, it, it's, it, it is not going to happen uh, for a decade at least mm. that someone's going to sit in the union buildings and govern the country in a sensible manner to the benefit of the majority of its people. Sure. And with that assumption in hand, you need to decide what your next move is going to be. Because on that, I assure you, I'm right. If your move is you want to stick it out here and make it work, yeah, then I, I think then that you is, got it. Then this that, has to change. Yes. Then this has to change, France. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, a, it's a mindset. It's, it's a mindset. And um, I think it's that mindset that will determine uh, the success ultimately. In fact, in the book later on, we, we got into... It's, the book's really our first step into pop psychology, I think, as, as a think tank. Right. And, and we write a lot about a Cypriot Greek political psychiatrist who I've fallen very much under the influence of, Fumik Volkan, who, mm. whose ideas I was introduced to uh, by the very uh, wonderful uh, Helian Lewis in the bar at Barrydale. <laughs> in, in Barrydale's so, a great place. So if, you think, if you think think tanks are sort of highfalutin academic institutions, much of our <laughs> presence. Wait, I know the bar you're talking about. Is that the bar? The that, next. Where you walk up the stairs, and it's got oh, a, it's like, got a, it's got a deck that's on the outside with with um, with umbrellas. That's fantastic. I went to talk in in Barrydale and and the neighbouring metropolis of Van Vijkstorp. <laughs> and I met, you should have her on the show, Helian uh, Lewis. She wrote a very important book, uh, Britain's Bastard Child. Ah, yeah, I know and the book. You should get her to come and talk to you about uh, chosen glory and chosen trauma as the manner in which people, as a group, deal with traumatic experiences. That's fascinating. And, 
And yeah, so mindset actually features prominently in the book on the full kind of thesis. And if, if you get get her onto your show, I think your your guests are going to find a very interesting person. She she and and the bar in Barrydale had a great influence on on us um, over the past two years. Um, Langile, we'll end with, with Langile. He says it's a great conversation. He loves these ideas, and now he's got something to talk about with his neighbors. And isn't that, isn't that the point, France? Isn't that what this is all about? It's the spreading of good ideas. Yeah, and it's the spreading, and that's why platforms like yours are so important. Um, because I really struggle to, to get this stuff as a group into the mainstream media. Mm. It's, 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 it's become practically not possible anymore. It's, it's blocked by editors, uh, this kind of assessment. And, why, though? Um, why do you think that is? I don't know. I think it's. I think it's, uh, um, I think it's a. It's. it's I, well, it's a global phenomenon in in the mainstream mm. media. It's, but but what it's done again, it's a very much mainstream media behaves a lot like the ANC on policy. The the faster it cuts off access to alternative analyses and opinions, the faster it creates a content. Mm. The uh, some that we've started on a newspaper, the Daily Friend, going great guns. Fifty thousand subscribers is is is, which, is, a, is a year in. For which uh, I amazing. proudly uh, draw for. For which I proudly draw. <laughs> so those, yep, yeah, no, 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 you do, don't you? Yes, you do. And <laughs> um, and so those. Those are there, and I, I think they they'll become more and more prominent mm. and more and more important, because you know on on a set of ideas like these to have this kind of discussion or piece done in something prominent like News Twenty Four is it's 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 really become very difficult. Now. Um, and I think yeah, and it is get the ideas out, talk about them, and you know if if one of your guests walks away this morning and says yeah I'm this is nonsense. It's mm. never going to happen. You know, great. Uh, that guy's been exposed to the possibility and he's made an informed decision that it's nonsense. And mm. I think in that sense, we've, as analysts and you as a, well, whatever you are, media. Cartoonist. I suppose. Oh, Provocateur. Provocateur. <laughs> uh, media, you've done your job as well. You've shone light into an idea, allowing <laughs> people to make up their minds whether they think it's good or bad. Yeah. Um, so that you don't have to uh, sound like a shill, France, I will say that I've included the ROR's details uh, under the video. So if people want to uh, go to the website, they're there. I would strongly suggest folks become a member of, of, uh, of the RRR. They're doing great work, absolutely phenomenally important work. Um, and also visit the Daily Friend, which is the, 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 the newspaper, as it were, of the, of the RRR. And it's got some great contributors. Have I have I have I done have I done the RR justice, Franz? It's not a newspaper. It's a newspaper. That's what it is. Runs news, opinion, various. Well, things. I say newspaper uh, because there's no physical paper. Yeah, but it's news. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a great thing, and um, I, I will do I will do a sales job. We need support of ordinary people to do what okay. we do. Because, uh, as you can imagine, no one is, is, is breaking down the door to the Institute offering to write a check. Mm. And we started a thing some time back called the Friends of the IRR. And these are ordinary people. They make debt order contributions to us of amounts that average below 100 rand a month. Uh, and collectively, we've now got a great number of those. They are now our most important source of income. And if you want to learn more about us or join that, you can SMS your name to 32823. You can look at the website. You can go through Jeremy. He can send you some links. And uh, we've got some fantastic uh, uh, staff mm. in our call center. And they'll give you a call. And it's paperless, easy sign up. And we need that support. Because without those people, those individuals and their you know, 50, 80 rand a month, uh, we would not be able to do the work that we do today. Yeah, and Jeremy, just, thank you very much for you. No, it's thank a great you pleasure. It's great to talk to you. And it's and great to talk I, to you too. You know, I, yeah, it's weird seeing you with a beard. It's been so long. <laughs> no, 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 I know. I, know. I quite like 
just to tell you quickly, uh, for those in the in the comments, I do try and walk the talk. I actually am a member of the RR, and my entire family is too. Are too. All let me let me rephrase it. All of my family members are <laughs> uh, friends of the RR, <laughs> as well as as well as some other good important groups in the country. But for now, the RR is is the one that we're talking about, and it's the one that you should support. France. It's always a great pleasure chatting with you. Yeah, it's great to talk to you too. I hope you guys all have a great week and uh, we'll talk again, I think, before the end of the year. Hopefully. Cheers, everybody. Ciao, France. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.